Well, before we read from the Gospel of John, I always like to begin by just answering the why questions. Why we gather in his book, Corporate Worship, some of you guys even have this or are familiar with this book, Corporate Worship by Matt Merker in his chapter, Why Does God Gather Us as a Church? And he writes these words. God gathers us unto his glory for exaltation. You can hear the thunderous roar of Niagara Falls as far as 20 miles away. At its peak, 2,382 metric tons of water cascade down the 188-foot cliff every second. It's staggering to comprehend such majesty. Yet although the falls seem forbidding, many visitors feel compelled to get closer. So they board the maid of the mist ship to hear the thunder of water on rock and to get soaked by the spray. The church gathers to hear and behold the glorious one, the one who stands above the entire universe. He is the creator, the designer of Niagara Falls and countless other wonders. Filled with reverent fear, we as the church on Sunday mornings approach God to adore his un rivaled beauty, and God gathers us to glorify him. If you're new with us today, that is the very purpose why we exist. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. And I would say just for my own motive this morning here in our short time is to bring us to John's gospel so that we can behold the glory of Jesus Christ. We are, of course, and you know this real well, facing some unprecedented times in the history of the church. All kinds of evil and sin are coming to us from the world in new ways. We are constantly being bombarded in the news of manipulation, deceit, abuse of authority, Lies, hypocrisy, hate, murder, calling good evil and evil good. That's the world, and we should expect it. And even in the church, we're seeing some who would call themselves evangelical who are being pressured by the new culture to compromise biblical truth, to make things more acceptable and accepting to the world at large, and there's some evangelicals who are sadly falling for it. And as God's true church, as his children in the world, we are susceptible to fear, doubt, anxiety, worry over what's going on around us. And really, by God's grace and love for us, And in his sovereign will, he gathers us to hear from his throne. 
He gathers us to hear from his perfect word and that he rules and reigns over all of it with ease. And he does it all for his glory and for our good. Amen. There are millions, church, millions and millions of people in our world today who are around us and they are giving no allegiance to the one and only true God. And in our passage, he is the one who is the very source of life. In our passage in John chapter 11, which we're going to read in a minute, Jesus is going to declare himself to be that one and only true God who is the very source of life. And he will do that. He will claim that he is the source of life, and he will prove that he is the source of that life by showing us his glory. Just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says that we as believers with an unveiled face, there's nothing now in the new covenant, there's nothing now as for us as believers that is veiling us from seeing and beholding Christ's glory. And as we behold Christ's glory, the Spirit is able to transform us from one image of glory to the next. As we behold the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, church, the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. If you look there with me in John chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 17 to 27. That's going to be our passage this morning. John says there, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world." No doubt it's a familiar passage and a familiar story to us believers who have been in the church for some time. It's the raising of Lazarus, God's miraculous work of raising his friend from the dead. 
John chapter 11, all of it, there's 44 verses, and I only read to you 10 verses. I'm not going to cover all of them. I'm just putting that out there right now. John records in chapter 11 the last and most powerful of the seven miraculous signs in his gospel. You remember in John chapter 2, where he turns the water into wine, the wedding at Cana. Chapter 4, he heals the official's son. Chapter 5, he heals a man on the Sabbath. Chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. Chapter 6, he walks on water. Chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. And number 7, the seventh sign that John records from the life of Jesus in his gospel, chapter 11, he raised a man named Lazarus who has been dead for four days. Now, we looked last time a few weeks ago in John chapter 10 at the Lord's confrontation with the Jewish authorities, if you remember, in Solomon's portico, which really, again, marked towards the end of Jesus' own public ministry. Chapters 11 and 12 of John's gospel are really a bridge going from his public ministry shortly to Passion Week. In John chapter 10, Jesus is in the area of Perea. John chapter 11, he hears the news of Lazarus, and he goes to the area of Jerusalem to see his friends and family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, for Jesus, going near Jerusalem at this time is extremely dangerous and costly because the hatred of Jesus has only intensified up to this point. They are still seeking to kill him. Look there at John chapter 11 and verse 8. As he says that he's going to go to Bethany, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And then you have, you have Thomas in verse 16 called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go with him as well, that we may die with him. Thomas understands the danger of going back to Jerusalem. This is it for them. We're going to die if we go there. But as we've seen before in John's gospel, Jesus is on a divine timetable. There's no mistakes being made here when Jesus is making these seemingly crazy decisions to go near danger. We are moments away right now in John chapter 11 from the start of Passion Week. Now, in a few days, Jesus will enter into the city and he will go to his triumphal entry. And then after that triumphal entry, he will then spend the next few days only with his disciples in that upper room discourse. Then he will go to Gethsemane. Then he will be betrayed, handed over to the council of the Jews, soon to be crucified. But before that busy week, that passion week, Jesus has one more miracle to display. One more opportunity to display his deity to the public. Another opportunity to publicly validate his claims as the Son of God. 
Another opportunity to publicly validate that he is one with the Father. Another opportunity to validate his claims to be the Son of Man, to be able to forgive sin, to be the bread of life, to be the light of the world. Another opportunity for him to publicly validate that he is the judge of everything, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His claim to be the only door of salvation. His claim to be the eternal I am. All of those claims that Jesus said publicly were claims that were validated in many ways. One, for instance, was his signs, his miracles, his wonders. Those claims that he had claimed were validated also by the people around him who were eyewitnesses of these signs and miracles. His claims were also validated by the people around him who said that he speaks with one as authority, like no one they have ever heard before. His claims were validated by his knowledge of the Old Testament. His claims to be God in the flesh were validated by him fulfilling by him fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. For instance, virgin birth. He had no earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born in Bethlehem. He was anointed by the Spirit of God. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was born a king. He was full of wisdom and power. He was preceded by a forerunner, John the Baptist. He was the coming Elijah. He healed the needy, the deaf hear, the blind see through him. He was a light to the Gentiles. He would soon be cursed on a tree. He was mocked, insulted. Soldiers cast lots for his clothes. He was silent when he was accused. No deceit was found in his mouth. He was numbered, around the tra- he was numbered around, among the transgressors. He would be pierced. He would be sold for pieces of silver, to name a few. Those are all direct fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His claims were also validated by his attributes. He displayed perfect grace. He displayed perfect holiness. He was unchanging. He displayed perfect love, mercy. He displayed power, omniscience. He was omnipresent. He can heal someone who wasn't even in front of him, the official son. He displayed his glory over and over again, not just on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. John chapter 11 is just another opportunity to see the glory of Christ. If you look there at John chapter 11 and verse 4, as soon as Christ gets word that Lazarus is ill, he says there in verse 4, that this illness does not lead to death, but yet it is for the glory of God, 
so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Remember now, John the Apostle who wrote this gospel is writing this account 60 years after these events. You, you know this passage real well, real well, but in John's prologue, the beginning chapter of his gospel, in verse 14, John says that the word, the pre-incarnate Christ, became flesh. And John says that he dwelt among us. And when he dwelt among us, we have seen his glory. The Gospel of John is just simply a record to prove that very truth. And although Christ's deity was veiled in human flesh, there's glimpses of his divine majesty all throughout the Gospel of John. Not just Matthew chapter 17, where there's a few disciples, and he peels back his humanity just a little bit to show his glory. That's one of many times where Christ manifested his glory. In John chapter 2, when Jesus literally turns water into wine, John chapter 2 and 11, John says that this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. John also wrote three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John in the back of your Bibles before Revelation. And John says in the beginning of his epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that also which we have touched with our hands, his life was made manifest to us, and we testify of it now to you. The Apostle John is saying to his readers, I was there. I saw him. I touched him. I heard his words. I saw with my eyes his glory. I saw the visible manifestation of his glory over and over and over again. That's what John the Apostle is trying to prove to his readers. That's what John wants every single one of us when they read his gospel to see the glory of Christ over and over and over again. John is saying, listen to me. I was there. I saw his glory. And in John chapter 11, this is just another manifestation of his glory seen in a miracle. And really, I'd say it's one of the greatest of all Jesus' miracles. We can see his crucifixion when he's in the garden. We can see his resurrection from the dead. Those are all miracles. But I'd say that this miracle of the seven miracles that John puts forth in his gospel is the greatest of them all. And I'll show you why. Now, I'm just going to have three simple points for you. Point one is going to be his coming, and that's verses 17 to 19. And we're going to see his claim, verses 20 through 27. 
And then I'm going to simply read the end of this account in verses 38 to 44, and that we'll see his, as his capability, his capability. But first, let's quickly set the scene a little bit better here to what's going on. We're jumping into the middle of the story, and it's just really simple. After Jesus has heard that Lazarus has been ill, he waits two days before he travels to Bethany. Jesus now knows that Lazarus has died, and he has now told the disciples, Lazarus is dead. And in verse 17, he arrives now in Bethany. Look there at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Now, I think that's a real important part of the story that really heightens the gravity of the miracle. Don't overlook four days there. Now, when the Jews buried someone, they didn't embalm like the Egyptians do, and they do it extremely well to where they can preserve a body for a really long time. The Jews would simply put the body, wrap him in a whole bunch of spices and try to bury the individual that very day. But it's interesting to know that the worst things that happen to a body actually happen to it within the first 72 hours. Let me read to you what happens to a body in the first four days. Immediately, the heart stops, obviously. Body cells are deprived of oxygen, and they begin to die. Muscles stiffen in what is known as rigor mortis. In 24 hours, the body has lost all heat. 36 hours, rigor mortis is gone. All stiffness is gone, and the body is now soft. All cells have died. Bacteria now starts to spread. Decomposing tissue takes on a horrific look and smell by 72 hours. Tissues releases, the tissue releases hydrogen sulfide and methane as well as other gases, which of course cause a horrible smell. Hold your breakfast. I know it's disgusting. But that's Lazarus right now. He is a rotting corpse by day four. That's why I think that this miracle is set apart from the other two times that Jesus raises the dead. You remember in Mark chapter 5 when he uh, raises Jairus' daughter. She had just died moments before Jesus came on scene. And then the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7 was being carried to the grave. I think there's ways to see, of course, just in our passage, why we for sure should think that he is, Lazarus that is, is for sure dead. If you look at verse 13 again, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they, the disciples, thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm going to take Jesus' word for it. 
Verse 18, Bethany now was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. This really highlights the risk that Jesus was taking again, like we've said, to come and help his friend, to show him love and compassion, especially to the family. But again, this also is there to display his glory. Verse 19, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Another proof that he actually died and he's not just sick. No one comes to console the family over someone that's just sick. They come and console the family because that individual has been declared dead. Now, this custom was very normal to the Jews. People would come to console the entire family for a specific uh, amount of time. They would bury the body as soon as possible. Most of the time, it was the day of death. There would be a burial site, or there would be a tomb, just like where our Lord was buried as well. And after the burial, the family and friends would return to the home to mourn their deceased family member for up to seven straight days. There would be weeping and wailing all of those days at all hours of the day as well. Women were also hired as paid mourners to come and wail loudly and sing. I know around here, at least to my knowledge, this doesn't go on in our own culture here in Monterey Peninsula. I've heard this is done in the South, and it's definitely done in our Middle Eastern cultures as well. Now, from a human perspective, these mourners were there to comfort the sisters in their loss. But from God's perspective, anybody that is coming to console the family would simply be there to witness Jesus' stunning miracle. The raising of Lazarus was going to be done in public before numerous onlookers. Many of those onlookers were actually hostile to our Lord still. And really, this is one of the most convincing arguments of the authenticity of Christ's miracles. When his own enemies are present, when he does these signs and wonders, they don't try to disprove those miracles. They don't say, oh, no, he didn't actually do those things. If you look there in chapter 11 and verse 45, After he heals, or actually after he raises Lazarus, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they actually believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, many signs, not just the one sign that they had just heard of, many signs. They've heard of many signs. They've been witnesses to many signs, and they don't try to discredit what Christ was obviously doing before them and for the people. In verse 48, John, or they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. They don't try to discredit what Jesus was doing. They simply try to explain away 
by saying that the power that he has, what he does do, he actually does by the power of Beelzebul. This really, it makes me think of what we're seeing um, in the modern charismatic movement. And I don't mean charismatic in the sense that I don't want to paint with a broad brush and include every single charismatic in what I'm going to say. I'm talking about the charismatic movement that has a false gospel that are always making these outlandish claims of walking through walls, walking on water, raising the dead. Even Bethel Church has a raising the dead team to where their students are actually part of a team and their sole purpose is to go and try to raise as many dead people as they possibly can. They're unsuccessful, just to let you know. And really, I mean, in the digital age that we live in, where everybody has a camera on their phone, even me, (laughs) right? Nobody's gotten a video of someone actually dead and being being raised. Not one single video, just claim after claim after claim with absolutely no proof. Jesus did not have to do his miracles in hiding or at night. He did them in broad daylight for all to see, and he didn't only do his miracles among those who love him and approve of him. He actually did it in front of people who hate him. It's something to consider. In John chapter 5, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, And around that pool were laying a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one man was there for 38 years. That man's uncurable sickness had been witnessed by the people for almost four decades in the same spot, doing the same thing. And Jesus heals that man for all to see. John chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind. Everybody in that small town knew who that man was. And they knew that he is now seen for the very first time. Point number two, we get to Jesus' claim starting in verse 20. Look there at verse 20 with me. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. How do we make sense of her response? Martha is heartbroken. It's very understandable. But I don't think she's rebuking Jesus here. I think that there's faith mixed into her response of Jesus not coming sooner. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, our circumstances would have been different. There's an acknowledgement of his power to heal. 
But there's maybe a little bit of unbelief as well, just maybe. It's difficult to know from her responses exactly what she means by what she says. The confidence that she did have here, Christ's ability to heal, but maybe she didn't extend that power to his ability to raise the dead. If you look at verse 39 in John chapter 11, Jesus said, Take the stone away. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. She's saying, Leave him alone. He's dead. There's nothing to be done. Now we can give Martha the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe his choice to raise her brother from the dead really hadn't crossed her mind. That's a possibility. But yet she is confident that his presence could have for sure brought some good out of her tragedy. He alone could have changed the circumstances of their situation when Lazarus is now dead. Verse 23 in chapter 11, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus doesn't specify when he will rise from the dead. And so she just has the common Jewish belief of the resurrection of the body, which is taught all throughout the Old Testament. The Pharisees will still hold to a resurrection on the last day. That's her belief. That's her understanding. And Jesus himself has affirmed on more than one occasion that on the last day, he will raise up all that the Father has given to him. So maybe she's not totally confused here. But he's about to clarify exactly what he means when he says, your brother will rise. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What is he exactly claiming here? What does the claim of Jesus actually mean? First of all, There's a dilemma here, and Jesus is pointing Martha to himself. He is correcting any kind of inadequate notion that Martha may have of Christ in this scenario, in her life right now. And he uses this opportunity to give her a more exalted view of himself. Now, John in his prologue, like I said, the beginning part of his gospel, John chapter 1, he gives us a little bit of a a spoiler alert. He says there in John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, and verse 3, speaking of the word logos, the pre-incarnate Christ, he says in verse 3 that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In verse 4, in him was life. 
in him was life. Well, what kind of life was in him? I would say it's both physical and spiritual life was in Christ. Spiritual life is that zoe, that is the spiritual life that is unseen, that is in every individual. Then you have that bios life, biology, that is the, which refers to the physical life. From the simplest one cell animal to the most come, uh, to the most complex creature, even to the life that angelic beings have, all things that were made through him was made from him as the agent of creation. That's physical life. And Christ is saying that he is the source of all of that life. And not only is John showing us that Christ gave life to the universe and everything in it, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that he upholds the entire universe by what? The word of his power. We are not deists. We do not believe that God created the world, wound up the clock, took a seat, and is allowing everything to happen the way that it happens. No, the Son of God directs all things, all things, toward the consummation of all things according to his sovereign decrees and purposes. All of it. There is nothing beyond his scope as the source of physical life. That's bios life. But then there's that zoe life, that spiritual life as well. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I what? I give them eternal life. There is a life that his sheep did not have at one time. And he is the one who gives them that Zoe life, that spiritual, eternal life. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 in verses 19 to 29. John chapter 5, verses 19 to 29, is really one of the clearest Christological passages in all of Scripture. I know it's a bold statement, but I really think so. I'm going to go through this really fast, so bear with me. Beginning in chapter 5 and verse 19. Wait a minute, let me get there first. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus is showing that he is equal to the father because he can do the works that the father does, which no one can do unless you are God. Verse 20, he says, For the Father loves the Son 
and shows him all things he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Well, what's the greater works than, than these? Jesus has just healed that man on the Sabbath. He is saying greater works than what you just saw from me healing the man on the Sabbath, greater works is my son going to do. Verse 20, so that you may marvel when you see him do it. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father gives life to physically dead people. And when you see, when you hear and know that the son gives life, you are to marvel and conclude that he is God in the flesh. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We're talking about spiritualness now. We're not talking about being raised physically. We're talking about being raised spiritually from the dead. It is a spiritual resurrection from death to life, and it comes from the Father and the Son. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. An hour is coming. An hour refers to an era. There is a time, Jesus is saying, that this will be happening. And it's happening right now. Jesus is saying it's happening right now before you. At the outset of the ministry of Jesus, he has been spiritually resurrecting dead sinners to life. His ministry of regeneration has begun and it is continuing all throughout the course of his ministry. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is saying, I have life in me. And I am giving dead sinners life right now. I raise the physically dead so that you may marvel and conclude that I am God. I also raise the spiritual dead and give them life as well so you can conclude that I am who I say I am. Turn back over to John chapter 11. Jesus is telling Martha by his claim that he is the resurrection and the life. Martha, 
your brother is dead. And what I am about to do before you and anyone that's looking, I don't need help from anyone on this. I don't even need to ask the Father to assist me on this one. I did not come here to merely teach you about the resurrection, how it's going to happen, or when it's going to happen. He is saying by his claim, Martha, I am the divine author of all resurrection power. Whether physical or spiritual, I am the root and fountain of all life. I am the great spring and source of all life. And whatever kind of life anybody has, eternal, spiritual, or physical, is all owing to me. It makes me think just of all of the blasphemies that are coming from just atheists around the world, the very oxygen that they are breathing is given to them by the very source of life, and they take that oxygen in, they breathe, and they spew out blasphemies against the one who gives them that very oxygen in life. That's horrible. But yet that was us. That was us until the voice of the Son of God told our dead souls to live for the very first time. If you look there at verse 26, he says after his claim to Martha, do you believe this? The question for everyone here today is the same as what was given to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the agent of all creation? Do you believe that he is the source of all life? Do you believe that Christ existed with the Father in the beginning before time began and he never had a beginning? He always was. Do you believe that he entered into his own creation and he was made flesh? Do you believe in his incarnation that he was sinless, completely righteous in all that he said and all that he did? Do you believe that all of his claims to be God were completely true? Do you believe that he displayed his glory by supernatural signs and wonders that no one could do unless God is with him or God in the flesh? Do you believe also that he died on the cross, that he died in the place of sinners? that he was resurrected in three days, proving everything that he said to be completely and utterly true? Do you believe that he ascended to the Father, to his rightful throne, where he rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords? 
Do you believe, church, or anyone joining us today, that you owe Jesus Christ, the source of life, your complete obedience and allegiance? But yet in your sin, you haven't given him one ounce of that very allegiance. And do you believe that you must be forgiven and that only he is able to forgive you and to give you eternal life because he is the only source of eternal life? Friends, if you believe that, my heart is warmed and I'm grateful for it. But it's actually not enough. You must Believe these things, and you must repent. You must turn away from your sin, your unrighteousness. You must forsake completely your old ways of living that blasphemed the, name, the very name of God. And you are to turn completely to Jesus Christ. I promise you, that he is a very willing Savior, and he will take you in and make you his own. Amen? I want to read just in closing verses 38 to 44. We have to get to the part where he actually raises Lazarus from the dead. Verse 38. John says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. His hands and feet bound him with linen stripes and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. No theatrics, no showmanship, no tricks up Jesus' sleeve to do what he just did. Jesus was completely content to let his divine power speak for itself. The grave of Lazarus was robbed of its victory. The door of death and Hades was unlocked by the one who alone holds its keys. Because he alone, Jesus Christ, is the source of life. And he alone has the power over death.
and he is our God. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And he is our King. Our Creator, who has life in himself, is for us and never against us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, like we prayed even this morning before service, the preservation of your word, generation after generation, giving your truth of these historical accounts of the life, ministry, and work of Jesus Christ, that we can continually come to hear the words of the glorious one, our Savior. For him to, for us to just be able to remember the words when he said, I am the eternal one, the resurrection and the life. And that if we believe in him by faith, we will die one day physically, but we will live eternally in your presence forever. Father, thank you that you continue to speak to your church. I pray that you would move us as a church from one image of glory to another, transforming us by the work of your Holy Spirit. We agree completely that the Holy Spirit's work wants to see the church look more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would truly work that in and around our church here at Grace Church, Monterey Bay. We are willing. Of course, the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. But make us willing in your transformation work. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.